0: All right, welcome back to the Based on History podcast, and before we dive into the episode dealing with the Battle of the Bulge, we're going to cover the segment called Things John Got Wrong, and this is going to be the things I got wrong dealing with the movie Zulu. And the first thing that I got wrong is when I was describing the Martini Henry, I referenced it as a lever action rolling block and that's partially wrong because the martini henry is not a rolling block when i was trying to describe it i was trying to think of other things i could use to describe it to alexis and i used the term rolling block which is its own form of a lever action and there are rifles called rolling block rifles one of them being the famous sharps rifle but the martini henry is not a rolling block It's just a lever action, and the rolling block has to do with how the chamber is manipulated when you pull that lever down, and the Martini Henry doesn't do that to qualify it. So, just get that out of the way. The other thing that I got wrong is I had mentioned that I was going to talk about it, and then later on as things progressed, I kind of forgot. We hit on it a couple times, but we never really, really tackled it, and that is the Zulu shields. The Zulu's The shields were very important to them. They were issued to them as equipment and then taken back. They took very good care to store them so they wouldn't get destroyed by rodents and things of that nature. And the different shields and the different colors identified different regiments. And the development of the army and how they used the spears and how they used the shields and and the kind of culture around them was always kind of changing depending on who was king. But... Nevertheless, the shields were important throughout Zulu history, and it it identified the different impi regiments, and then you also saw it identified different types of soldiers. For example, great warriors or warriors who had distinguished themselves in battle or were older had white shields, and if they distinguished themselves, sometimes they would have a shield with a spot or two spots on it. And then you had your young, experienced, inexperienced, excuse me, soldiers, and they would have black shields. And when they're in their horns of the buffalo formation, the more experienced soldiers would take up the spots of the chest that they're going to engage the enemy directly. And the more inexperienced soldiers would make up the horns, the flanking action. And they would get their experience more that way and then be implemented into the chest. And then, of course, you had the reserve as well. But I just wanted to hit on that because I thought it was really cool and we didn't really dive into it quite as much in the actual episode. So I'm sure there's more that I got wrong. I'm sure there's more that I'm going to get wrong on this upcoming episode. Don't forget to uh, comment on one of the Instagram posts and tell me what I got wrong. And we'll cover it on the next one. All right, without further ado, let's dive into the Battle of the Bulge. Before we get started on the episode, I just wanted to add on something that I didn't have at the time of recording the things John got wrong, and so we're adding a little extra on to things John got wrong, which is great. I always appreciate knowing and figuring out The things that I messed up on in the episode and the things I got wrong. And this has to do with some of the words and pronunciations of things in the Zulu and Zulu mini episode. So in the episode, I referred to them as the HOSA. And that word is spelled X-H-O-S-A. And I looked up how to pronounce it and i tried pronouncing it the way i heard it and i just i it was really hard for me to physically pronounce it the correct way and so i just tried to do the best that i could and of course i still got it wrong i pronounced it hosa and it's really more pronounced kosa and even that is a english version of how you would actually say that word the x in that language is kind of a clicking sound and the English language, we don't have that sound. And so whenever I try and do it to get it right, it just sounds unnatural and even more wrong than just me pronouncing it the English way. So I just wanted to recognize the fact that that's the way that it would be said with that kind of clicking sound at the beginning, and then more of it sounding like cosa. So I should have just said cosa through the entire episode. And the same thing would have been true to the word, the tribe that I referred to as the Gika. They It's spelled N-G-Q-I-K-A. And that N-G at the beginning is another sound that in the English language we don't have. And I tried pronouncing it correctly and listening to pronunciations of it to get it right. And I just could not do it. It sounded even more, I just butchered it completely. So I just want to recognize the fact that those that I got one, I got those pronunciations wrong, and two, acknowledge the language in and of itself. And then the, uh, the other, another one of the words I got wrong, I said the Sotho, which would actually be the Sutu. And this one I knew, and I get it wrong all the time. So that's just on me. But I always say apartheid, and it's really apartheid. So those are some more things that John got wrong. In the Zulu episode, and I'm not going to sit here and apologize for getting them wrong. I did the best I could. I tried to pay respect to everybody involved in the episode, but I am going to acknowledge the things that I did get wrong and try and correct them as as best as possible. So a little extra things John got wrong uh, here, and now let's dive into the Battle of the Bulge. This episode is brought to you by Alexis Knight Photography. Alexis is an award-winning lifestyle, brand and wedding photographer based in the Cotswolds, England, specializing in headshots, family shoots and event photography. Alexis has over 20 years experience. You can find her work and contact her for all your photography needs at alexisnight.co.uk. That's alexis k i n g h t.co.uk. We are also brought to you by Design Weaver Textiles. Based in the heart of the Cotswolds, Philippa Weaver of Design Weaver Textiles is a hand-tufted rug designer and maker with a passion for British craftsmanship. With 20 years of experience designing carpet for high-end hospitality, she is uniquely suited to bring a fully bespoke design and make service to you, taking care at each stage to provide a beautiful and truly unique work of art to your interior landscape. You can find her on Instagram at designweavertex. Again, that's at designweavertex. You're listening to the Based on History Podcast. All units, Irene. I say again, Irene. And we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time. And we're going to go through him like crap a Goose. You tell them I'm coming! And hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! That they may take
1: our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Are you not
0: entertained?
1: Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here?
0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to the Based on History podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Nyack, joined by my wife, Alexis, once again.
1: Hello again.
0: And today we're going to be covering the movie The Battle of the Bulge, filmed in 1965. And just like with all the episodes, we're going to talk about the movie for just a little bit, then we'll dive into the history. So I had seen this movie a lot growing up. I watched it when I was really, really young. You had never seen it before. No. Had you even heard of it?
1: No, don't even say. So.
0: And what? I mean, what were some of your initial reactions and thoughts um, to the movie? It's filmed a long time ago, so it's a little campy. Watching it now. Yeah. But...
1: Well, when you told me that it was an old war movie that we were going to be watching, I kind of thought, oh no, not another one. <laughs>
0: not another one. <laughs> We've... Well, most of the movies we watch are going to be war movies. Yeah. Just to let <laughs> you. know. But an
1: old one, like a '60s kind of old movie. Um, so I was, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would.
0: It's entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, especially for an older movie, and yeah. it's got a really good cast. It what... made
1: me feel like I was, I was a little girl again with the TV on in the background because my parents used to play movies like that quite a lot.
0: I remember watching it when I was really young with my dad and my brother. And I thought it was pretty cool then, you know, and I hadn't really gotten into the history at all. And I so it was kind of like one of those kind of quintessential war movies that everyone kind of knows about and everyone's kind of seen. And it's got this pretty great cast. And it seems very grand whenever you're watching it. And as we get into it, then you'll realize that this movie is just absolutely terrible when it comes to being historically accurate. It's like the World War II Braveheart.
1: Well, as long as you tell me that those MPs that were German pretending to be American were real, that's all that I care about.
0: There were some Germans pretending to be Americans during the Battle of the Bulge it's not quite as it is in the movie and we'll get into that but that is true there were german units okay. in american uniforms operating behind enemy lines uh, during during the battle
1: but they didn't switch signs around and sabotage like the bridge bombing and
0: they did they did oh, do things did? like that. They yeah did? they did do things
1: okay. like that well, so like um,
0: we'll we'll, that's we'll, cool. we'll get into it a little bit more but it's so they parachute in behind enemy lines. Mm-hmm. And in real life, they kind of infiltrated from the ground. And then there was an airborne, a German airborne operation that did parachute the night before to do similar things.
1: They had, they had actual, like, men that had lived in America and sounded American. Yes, yes yeah, it's, wow. be- it's amazing so, that Americans actually, well, Germans who had lived over there were so happy to fight that war.
0: So it's not quite like it's portrayed in the movie where the guy says like every single one has lived in, in the United States at some point in time. There were only a few of those. So they got those guys and then they got Germans who could just speak English to go with them as well. Right. So it's not quite I just and hope
1: that nobody spoke to them had their German accents.
0: Pretty much. Pretty much. And it it didn't it didn't have quite the influence on the battle as it does kind of in the movie, although they did do a lot of those similar things and disrupt, you know, American activity and, and things of that nature. It just wasn't quite as crucial as it's portrayed in, okay. in the movie. So anything else about the, uh, about the movie that stood out to you or anything like that?
1: Um, I mean, I thought that it was kind of comical, like just how, you know, how old it was and, and, the tri- like the techniques and tricks that they used for things like the German tanks, that funny that funny noise that you would hear every single time the German tanks were coming on it just sounded like somebody was sat in a studio winding some old cranky machine on that was just kind of not oiled and slightly squeaky <laughs>
0: well that might be true as far as the movie is concerned but tanks do make that kind of squeaky noise yeah. the, their tank treads do kind of make that so you know but I don't...
1: Yeah, just just how that sound would come on in every time like, mm-hmm.
0: it's like cue the yeah, cue, cue the squeaky yeah cue, cue the, the sound,
1: sound. <laughs> even when they're flying in the plane yes and like they're coming near to the German tanks
0: and they hear the squeak yeah that's coming. the sound that identifies them yes. yeah I, I think it's funny how like when the vehicle, when a lot of vehicles are moving but then it switches to like someone important in a vehicle mm-hmm. it you can tell like they're on a the sound stage and yes. there's like some screen behind them and they have to like pretend like they're driving mm-hmm. or pretend like they're advancing in their tank and looking through binoculars but really you can just tell they're just like standing still yeah. or the vehicles like standing still you know it has kind of those that old
1: it kind of felt like a home movie I've been on a bigger, more epic scale. Yeah,
0: I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> but it does have an old feel to it, for for mm-hmm. sure. Watching it the second, or not the second time, I've seen it a bunch of times, but watching it this last time, it was, we'll get into the just here in a second, what all they did get wrong, but I was still impressed by how many tanks there were in some of the scenes. Mm-hmm. In some of those shots, there's 20, 30, 40 tanks. And then, you know, even like at the end, the American tanks, there's probably 20 or 30 of them. And they're all on this field. And they've got some aerial shots, yeah. you know, and showing the, the full field of view. And you see all these tanks. I mean,
1: those were my favorite scenes.
0: They're, they're that, pretty cool. At the end. Yeah, they're pretty cool. And we will move into some of the kind of technical things that they got wrong. And then we'll start kind of going down the, the timeline like we usually do. Some of the big things that this movie is criticized for, right off, right off the bat, are the tanks. The the not just like the number because uh, we just I just gave them credit for how many you know tanks they do have in, in the movie, which is which is pretty cool. But the types of tanks, the types of tanks that the Germans are using in this film, are U.S. M forty-seven Patton tanks. And they weren't made until after World War II. So they are just completely historically inaccurate. They wouldn't have been there. That's not what the, the German Tiger... Well, it's really supposed to be the King Tiger. That's what they're trying to portray, which is the Tiger II. Mm-hmm. So they already had a Tiger, and then the Germans made a Tiger II tank later on. So
1: why did they use that one? The they,
0: one? They did it for a couple of reasons. One... There aren't very many King Tigers left. You, you couldn't find that many, even though this was made in the 60s, so only 20-some-odd you know, years mm-hmm. after uh, World War II had ended. There weren't very many German tanks surviving to portray that mm-hmm. many German tanks in a movie. And two, it, you got the idea of how big the German tanks were compared to the U.S. tanks. Because the u the the tanks they use for the U S troops in the movie are the U S Chaffee tank, which is a World War II tank, but they're using it to portray the Sherman tank, which is kind of like the main battle tank that the that the U S Army used in World War II. And so what they've done is they've got this American patent tank that they've done up you know, they've they've colored it silver and they put the swastikas and they put mm-hmm. the iron crosses on it and everything like that to make it look like the German and it's massive and it's huge. And they got these little, little German mm-hmm. or American chaffy tanks to look like American Shermans to portray the fact that mm-hmm. the German armor is just so, so much bigger. So it's something that they get hit on a lot for, but when you really look at it, the this movie company is not going to be able to scrounge mm-hmm. out, you know, 50 King Tigers mm-hmm. from World War 2 They're just... There weren't that many left. There's only like, I may be wrong, but I think there's like two, maybe three preserved working King Tigers. And so they they just weren't going to be able to do that. Yeah. um, I don't
1: think it's really very important either.
0: No, I mean, when you look at, you know, they could have done something to make them look more German. They could have put some, some holes on them, like the top part to make it look a little bit more German. They're going to go through all that trouble. But, you know, I go back and forth between saying like, "Oh, they didn't do enough," or "It's a ba- it's a big mistake." But from a movie standpoint, like I said, you're not going to be able to get that many German World War Two era tanks at that time, so they had to make do with what they got. The other big thing that the movie is kind of pinged for is the fact that they filmed in Spain and not in Belgium, and I don't hold not filming in the exact location against all the movies, because if you're filming a movie you know about somewhere where you can't go, or it's it's not the same as it was during that time, then you, you, you have to find some place to replicate that, right? Like, modern movies that want to tell a story about Afghanistan aren't going to Afghanistan to film the movie. They're finding other places like Morocco or, you know, thing, things of that nature to portray that. But what they chose to and how they chose the spots in Spain to portray the Ardennes of Belgium is kind of where people have the problem. The opening scene when the Germans start their advance and they're going through the trees and there's snow everywhere, in my opinion, is actually pretty good. It, that's a, that would be a pretty good representation mm-hmm. of, of the area if they had just stuck kind of with that. Because the whole point of the Ardennes is this heavily dense woods in this mm-hmm. area of Belgium. And that's one of the reasons why the battle takes place there, and we'll we'll get to that here in a in a second when we start talking about why they chose that location and and things of that nature. But then after that initial scene of the kind of Germans pushing the Americans back, it's all open ground. They're all in these like rolling hills. There's no snow. It's actually kind of warm looking. It, the movie jumps in and out of having snow in places. It just you know it's it's badly done for like. Right. Yeah, and the the Indian Tank Battle that's on this flat open plain so that the tanks can, mm-hmm. you know, drive around and stuff like that. It just wouldn't have been like that. It wouldn't have been like that at all. The other some of the other things that they that they get wrong are that last tank battle does not happen. There is no massive open field tank battle during the, the Battle of the Bulge. There are some tank engagements, but not like that. And it was not the kind of end objective of the Americans to have this massive tank-v-tank tank battle to dry up the Germans' gas supplies. Okay. That was not part of the overall but, Allied but plan. But did
1: that happen? Did they, did they run out of fuel and have that end that battle, or was it not like that at all?
0: No, so fuel is a component a major component of this battle especially from the german side of the planning and objectives mm-hmm. but it wasn't like the germans figured this out and then decided to fight them specifically to have the the german tanks run out of gas on the battlefield and that would end that would end the the battle and the germans right. would lose as soon as they ran out you of gas
1: the british figure it out or the americans figure it out i mean
0: did I say British?
1: No, you said the Germans figured it out.
0: Oh, sorry, yeah, the yeah. the Americans figured it out. But there is a component of fuel being extremely precious to the Germans in this in this battle for sure. But the Americans already knew that the Germans were running low on resources and running low on fuel and and things of and things of that nature. So for them to like kind of like figure it out ad hoc as they're in retreat and realize, oh we can stop them here and their tanks will run out of gas and mm-hmm. that will stop the German advance and then you know'll the, the Germans surrender or whatever walk home was never part okay. I mean what, could...
1: and was it, was it just the Americans that were fighting them in this area they, they didn't have any allies that were. Fighting with
0: them. So, so there are some British units
1: mm-hmm.
0: fighting during the Battle of the Bulge, but not like the Americans. It's it's almost entirely an American right. versus German battle. Now, I'm not going to say completely because there are British troops in the area, and then later on, part of the counterattack by the Allies, the British are involved, mm-hmm. and so there, it, you know, there was British and American troops fighting during the Battle of the Bulge. But it is almost all Amer- American American fighting.
1: Did the massacre happen?
0: Yes, so that massacre does happen. The Mominy massacre does happen, fairly similar to how it, it, it's portrayed in the movie. There's a couple other massacres that happen. The Germans round up American prisoners and they just execute them. There's a story. They round up a platoon of like black soldiers. And they like torture them before they kill all of them. You know, they're they're committing atrocities as as they sweep through. That kind of covers some of the things that they got wrong. There's a few other little things. Um, there's a few other little things that the movie got wrong. Like their their equipment's not completely right. Mm-hmm. The way they fire their weapons, weapon ma- manipulations, really bad in this movie. It's very campy. The you know, like when you're a kid and you're playing with, you know, playing guns and stuff like that, and you shake the stick mm-hmm. like you're shooting. You can tell they're do- doing that. The sounds the are way kind of that,
1: that one guy shoots the machine gun at the um, that MP. At the end the way oh he where gets he just it out, so. yes
0: yeah just fan the gun as quickly <laughs> as possible and shoot everybody in sight yeah, and people are wearing wrong gear for the weapon they're carrying and people are it's just all hodgepodge it's right. like they it's like they walk through the movie department and they're like you get one of these and you get one of these and you get one of these and here's this coat and here's this coat and and so it's all bad it's it's mostly period correct for what mm-hmm. they're wearing it's just so hodgepodge that you can tell they didn't they didn't do much research. Well, it looked
1: like they had a lot of fun filming it. it. just looked like a fun film to make, even though it was about war and death and everything. It was just a lot of acting.
0: <laughs> yes, a lot of acting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the... Our, I mean, I was laughing during the movie, and and you said, oh, what well, what is that about? And it's when Telly Savalas, who's the tank commander, mm-hmm. and he's driving, and they have to pull off the side of the road... And then they stop really quickly and all of his like supplies that he's going to sell fall off. And he's like, my merchandise. (laughs) And I was laughing because my little brother, Mark, when we were younger, we would draw war pictures and things like that. And Mark drew that scene where he's got the tank and he's Mm -hmm. and it's it's like got stuff all over it and stuff's falling off. And he's got this little character drawn up on top of the tank with his hands on his head with (laughs) a with a speech bubble that says my merchandise. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. I could find that that drawing somewhere. My parents probably have it. But all right, so let's dive in to kind of the historical timeline and then we'll kinda of jump in and out of the movie like we like we normally do. So the the offensive starts in December of nineteen forty four. And if you listen to the the Based on History Mini, the war in Europe that came out last week, we we lead right up to the Ardennes Offensive. And the, the Germans have been preparing for this offensive since September of 1944. Hitler has basically taken complete control over it. It's his pet project. He's starting to kind of lose his mind this late in the war. There's been multiple attempts on his life. He doesn't trust anyone. And he envisions... And this becomes even more prevalent as the war, you know, is in its closing stages. Hitler envisions these grand German armies doing these massive sweeping movements and recreating the Blitzkrieg through France and recreating the Blitzkrieg through Russia, encircling these armies, capturing hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and turning the tide of the war. And that is what he envisions in the in the Battle of the Bulge, which they called the Ardennes Offensive, and You've got the British kind of in the north, and then you've got the Americans kind of in the south, and he wants to pierce through the middle of them, capture the port city of Antwerp, and then, you know, in his wildest dreams, the Western allies realize they can't beat Germany, they sue for a separate peace. They reestablish a defensive you know, a defensive line that is going to be German territory versus not German territory. And then all of those troops that are in the West can be brought to the East so that they can throw back the Russian armies and defeat Russia, which has always been Germany's number one you know, enemy. It's always been their goal to dis- destroy Russia. So to do this, he has to take units from the eastern front that are fighting the russians over to the west so he has to weaken his eastern defenses so that he can prepare for this for this offensive and he's doing it during the winter because the russians have been advancing on the eastern front the americans and the british have been advancing on the western front and it's the winter time so everything is kind of slowing down for their for their fall you know pushes and supplies are are being overreached on both sides. And so both the Russians and the British and the Americans are kind of holding firm. They're going to build up their supplies, refit their units, and plan for a big spring offensive to drive into Germany. And while they're doing this, Hitler is going to launch his German offensive through the Ardennes to beat the Americans and the British, and then when spring comes, be able to turn around and go and fight the Russians right. again. Okay. So the Americans are getting close to Germany. And the German defensive line is called the Siegfried Line. Mm-hmm. And the Americans have been trying to penetrate that defensive line for a few months and they can't do it. And we talked about the fighting in the Hürtgen Forest and like mm-hmm. things like that right at the end in if they had penetrated that line earlier on, they would have found some of the staging areas for the Ardennes Offensive, but the Germans held them and they pushed They pushed the Americans back. The Americans and the British have this thing called the Ultra, which if you've seen the imitation game with Bennett Cumberbatch about them deciphering mm-hmm. the German codes, they've been listening to German codes through the whole war and helping them make strategic decisions. It's pretty incredible that the Germans have achieved essentially complete surprise with the Ardennes Offensive, even with the Americans and, and the British reading all the ultra transcripts. They they do different things to um, camouflage their movements. They put out false reports about where things are going on. And come the 16th of December, the Americans and the British have no idea what the Germans are up to. There's a massive artillery bombardment from the germans and then the offensive uh, the offensive launches there's three pronged attack there's a northern center and southern mm-hmm. attack and the two the northern and the center are end up of armored divisions they've got tanks they've Was got that
1: central one Hessler's one the spearhead is that what they were saying in the movie
0: right so in the movie Hessler the, is not a real character to begin oh. with He's based what on a was man the other
1: question I had about the characters, how accurate all of them were.
0: None of the characters in the movie are real. They're all fake okay. characters. But they're all based on
1: None of them. None of the American
0: Colonels or okay. Nope. None of them are real characters. They've all they're all based on real people, but none of them are have the real names. None of them are portraying an mm-hmm. actual historical character. Robert Shaw, who plays Colonel Hessler in the movie, he's based on a German Panzer commander named Joachim Piper. He's with an SS division. In the movie they don't actually say that that Hessler is SS and in fact they say that he's not SS, but his uniform has SS insignia on right. it. And so we'll talk about the German units. The Northern the Northern Panzer Army is the is the spearhead. Mm-hmm. And they're, they have the shortest drive to Antwerp. So they get the most tanks. They get the most new tanks. They get the most automatic weapons. They get the most supplies. They get the most fuel. And they're made up of almost entirely SS units, which are fanatically loyal to Hitler. Mm-hmm. And they've been fighting on the Eastern Front, committing war crimes all through the Eastern Front. He's brought them over to the Western Front now. And they're kind of... The people that Hitler really, really trusts. Some of the commanders have been Nazi Party members with Hitler from the beginning of the of the Nazi Party, and then they were in the SS and and things of that nature. The center group is made up of. Now there are still some SS divisions in the center group, but they're made mainly of the Wehrmacht or the Wehr, the German, the traditional German army. And then the southern, the southern prong of this attack, is made up of kind of more infantry now they still have some armored units and things like that but by no means do they have any divisions and they're kind of the flank protection they're going to make sure that no units can penetrate through them so that the two northern columns have a more or less unimpeded advance towards antwerp the 16th of december when they launched the assault they catch the americans completely by surprise and they gain a lot of ground.
1: And there was nobody warning the Americans like there is in the movie like the colonel is in the movie saying I think this is going to
0: happen. Right. So in the movie Henry Fonda's character who's the who's the man you're talking about his character's name is Colonel Kylie. He's based off of a man named Benjamin Abbott Dickens and he did his character did think that there was a offensive coming through the Ardennes and no one believed him. So that part of his okay. character is true. And the reason they didn't believe him is he was a military intelligence officer and he had gotten a couple things wrong in the past. He had thought some things were going to happen and then they didn't. And so kind of his military reputation had been, mm-hmm. had been hurt. And so when he's telling everybody, Hey, I, I think that the Germans are going to advance to the Ardennes sometime in December. No one believes him. And then when it does happen, he he's not even there when it happens but he does come back with his unit and begins to help in a military intelligence. Right, okay. He's not quite like on the front lines like Henry Fonda's character is he seems like to be single-handedly finding mm-hmm. things and single-handedly discovering things. That doesn't happen. But he is his character is based on a real person that did think that there was going to be an offensive. No one believed him and then it did happen. That's kind of the end of his
1: Right. Okay. You know,
0: effect on the battle other than the fact that he was a military intelligence officer and during this battle he helped find information to assist with with the you know repulse of the German offensive and things of that nature. The sixteenth of December, the Americans think it's a limited a limited attack because they had done some probing attacks earlier in December and they thought this was just kinda of like retaliation for the Americans kind of
1: pushing not a big plan
0: they didn't think it was this massive massive Mm -hmm. plan they thought the Germans were just kind of restabilizing the line so to speak by the 17th of December they know it's full-on they're the Americans are in full retreat in some areas you know tens of thousands of, of Americans have been captured and the Americans realize hey this is a full-blown german offensive and That's we've got to do something that I don't about
1: think that the movie um captures so well they don't really capture the the number like tens of thousands i would never have guessed that from watching the movie it seems like a much smaller scale
0: yes so the movie focuses mainly on Hessler's you know tank column mm-hmm. as the spirit and they talk about that in the movie so if you kind of know how the military works, you can kind of understand that there's more going on around, right, okay. but the movie itself is focusing on this specific area. You know, when the Germans initially launched their attack through the woods and there's like reports coming into the German headquarters in that kind of like big mm-hmm. bunker, if you if you know a little bit about the history, you hear things of them like, you know, Southern Sector, Resistance like Capturing This, Center okay. Sector. They, they do do some things to say hey this is a much bigger scale attack than, than what is just being okay. shown on screen and in the movie there's that scene where the Germans on the motorcycle show up to the Americans in that little bombed out building mm-hmm. and they're asking for their surrender that is in a completely different sector than what the, the rest of the, the movie okay. and we'll talk about that here in a little bit but by the 17th the Americans realize it's a full German offensive and the Americans are, are in retreat the 18th and the 19th the americans start putting their reserves in very quickly and i don't think the germans thought that this would happen so quickly hitler's always overconfident in what his troops can and can't do i think that the ability for the americans to take some units that are in like rest and refit and in reserve and put them into action in like 24 hours essentially it it surprised the germans and i don't think that they were ready for it because you've got whole divisions being moved across France in 24 hours to plug some of these gaps to help stiffen resistance and things of that nature. And a lot of it is the airborne units that had just got done fighting in Holland. They're resting and refitting, but they're still in France. And so they can be plugged into the battle line pretty quickly. And you've got the 82nd Airborne that kind of goes up north To help stiffen the defense. And you've got the 101st Airborne. Going down south towards Bastogne. To help stiffen resistance. And that happens very quickly. They're in the field. By the the evening of the 19th. So only a few days. After the initial German assault. The Americans are already committing their reserve. And they're already making plans. To move units back up. From different areas. To counter the German attack. In the movie. It's just like. The Americans fall back, Americans fall back, and then we're going to have this massive tank battle to stop this armored column. In, in reality, it, it's not quite like that. The Americans do fall back in a whole different places, but there's stiff pockets of resistance all over the place. And we're going to talk about two of the kind of main pockets of resistance that really, really hold up the German advance to such a degree that it, it really has an effect on the overall the overall battle. And those two, the two kind of separate battles within the battle are the Battle of Elsenborn Ridge and the Battle of Bastogne. And the Battle of Elsenborn Ridge is up in the north and the Battle of Bastogne is down in the south. Mm -hmm. And in the initial phases of the German offensive, they hit these areas hard, but because of American resistance in each of those areas, they're able to keep these pockets open For some American reinforcements to come in and help shore up the defensive. We'll talk about the Battle of Elsenborn Ridge first. It's up in the north. And those elite SS Panzer divisions that Hitler favored so much. They're the ones who are going to attack in the north. And one of the first things they run into is the Elsenborn Ridge. And it's some high ground in that area that enables the Americans to set up a stiff defense. And... They hold the Germans, in some places the Germans don't take any ground. And so what this does is, because of the timetable that the Germans are on, they have to reroute. And so these northern units have to head down south, and then they start clogging up the roads and things of that nature, and it really, really hinders their ability to move quickly. Mm-hmm. And that—that that is one of the things that is about the Ardennes that allows the Americans to counter this German offensive, is that the Ardennes is very, very dense, dense woods. Now there are a lot of roads in the Ardennes, but outside of those roads, there's not a lot of open ground to maneuver on. So if these roads are held, or these roads are clogged or defended well, it's gonna clog up the German advance. And they are on a tight, tight timetable because of their fuel. Mm -hmm. And one of their major objective is to capture American fuel depots along the way. It said that the Germans only had about 100 miles worth of fuel for a full... Why were
1: they so low on fuel?
0: Because the Ger- Germany is not a very fuel-rich, oil-rich country. Okay. And their reserves... They've been fighting since 1939. Right, okay. And they captured, they captured oil fields in Romania. They captured oil fields in Russia, parts of Russia. And by 1944, a lot of those areas had been recaptured by the Russians. And so the German fuel reserves are very, very low. Okay. So in the movie they do portray, you know, the fuel as being a big, big part of it, and it is. It is. It's just not. They make it seem like the fuel it depot. Doesn't
1: end the battle. It doesn't end
0: the battle, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll get to more why that doesn't end the battle a little bit later when we get towards the ending stages of the Battle of the Bulge. But at this Battle of the Elsenborn Ridge, they put up stiff, stiff defensive. They're out. They're outnumbered over two to one by the Germans. Who are being hit by. Tanks are being hit by, you know, infantry with the newest assault weapons and things of that nature, and they hold firm. And a a lot of them, a lot of Americans die in holding out this ridge by these German assaults, and the Germans bypass it. So in the movie, Hessler's column is the spearhead, the northern spearhead, and he's based on that German tank commander that we talked about earlier, um, Joachim Piper. And he is forced down south in his spearhead because of the stiff resistance in, by the Americans on the ridge line. And the Germans leave some units there to take the ridge, open up those ro- roadways in that area, that way the supplies and the rest of the units can can catch up with with his spearhead as they move on. There's there's like hand-to-hand fighting on the ridge. There's tanks that are getting into these little villages, and there's little pockets of resistance sometimes, like 18, 20 Americans are in these villages destroying tanks with bazookas and things like that. A whole, there's, I'm, I can't remember exactly what the town is called, but it's a small platoon that fight these German tanks and German units that are attacking them. They end up all being captured, but they delay... The German advanced long enough to where they can fortify the ridge more, bring up some artillery, American artillery, so they can counter the German armor and things like that. And this, the the Elsenborn Ridge holds all the way through, it holds all the way through the battle, through the Battle of the Bulge. And the Germans don't make it very far, and they redirect all all of their northern columns south, and they start clogging up these roads, which in turns clogs up the central advance of you know and and, uh, okay. and and they they're all messed up in these roads and it allows the americans time and then they're eventually able to start pushing the germans back you don't really hear about the battle of elsenborn ridge very much especially being portrayed on in media it's always the 101st airborne at the battle of the bulge which is what's portrayed like in band of brothers mm-hmm. you know when they're fighting in the snow and in the woods okay yeah you always hear about the more famous hundredth and rightfully so. Rightfully so. I'm not trying to take anything away from it. It's not in this movie. It's just not in this movie, and it's not really in any movie. You don't really ever see it, and I think it just it just needs to be talked about more because these it's it's really these two divisions, the 99th and the 2nd Infantry Divisions, are the ones that hold this area, and the 99th Infantry Division was untested in battle, or at the very least, very very green in in battle, and they put up stiff. Stiff resistance against the crack SS troops. Some of the most famous SS units in the war. You got the the second SS Panzer Division, and I think the first SS Panzer Division, which is Das Reich and the Adolf Hitler. They're named, you know, after Germany, and they're named after Hitler. It's kind of like their their unit name. Are there yeah. many
1: people that fought in World War Two that are still alive in America?
0: Well, very very few. Especially, I mean, there are still some. But I, I couldn't give you a number, but yes, there are there are still some that are alive.
1: So did the Germans ever make it to Antwerp?
0: No. They don't get close. Okay. They don't get close. Antwerp from the some of the German staging areas is roughly a hundred miles, you know, more or less, mm-hmm. just you know, make it easy, say a hundred miles. And the farthest the Germans penetrate is 60 miles. And that's just barely. That's just the farthest they get. And it's already starting to, to peter out. Mm-hmm. By the 20 and 21st of December, the German advance is already struggling. The, the Americans have already put reserves in the Americans are already starting to move other troops around for counterattacks and things like that and the, it's and what did
1: you say it started on the 16th? it started on the 16th okay. of
0: December so and by 5
1: days later
0: there the some of the german high command who are in charge of this are already by the 20th and 21st of December telling hitler like we need to stabilize this line or we need to pull back because it's not working mm-hmm. we're, we're running out of fuel we're not capturing as much fuel as we thought. We're losing too many units. The resistance is stiffer than we thought, and we're going to waste all of these men that we need to, to defend either the Siegfried Line in the west or to fight the Russians in the east. And if we keep pushing up, they're going to get cut off and surrounded, and we're going to lose all of them, which is, of course, eventually what happens. But by by the twenty twenty first of December, it's already not going very good for the Germans. We, we'll we talk about the, the Battle of Bastogne now, the other kind of... Stiff resistance in the south. The Bastogne's a key roadway in southern Belgium. And the Germans need it for their tanks and armored and all their other vehicles to use it. It's got like seven roads leading in and seven roads leading out. And they they need it because the rest of it's all heavily forested. There's some units that are already there. They fight some heavy action around Noville to delay the Germans to allow the 101st and some other supporting units to get there and start putting up their defenses. The 101st arrives there at the night of the 19th. By the late in the 20th, they're completely surrounded in Bastogne. So the Battle of Elsenborn Ridge, they're bypassed, but they're not completely surrounded. So some supplies can still get in. Mm-hmm. In Bastogne, they're completely cut off. And like it is portrayed in the movie, how the weather was all foggy and that it grounded Allied airplanes. Mm-hmm. That That's true. It, that really happened. That's one of the reasons why the Germans launched the offensive in the during this time in the first place. And so Allied supplies can't get to the 101st Airborne and the other units that are there. They're low on supplies anyways. The winter is one of the worst winters they've had in that area in a very long time. Some men are suffering from trench foot, things of that nature. They don't have warm clothing. They barely have enough ammunition and they're being hit by these German armored units and then completely cut off and surrounded from any reinforcements or supplies. How long
1: were they cut
0: off for? About a week. Okay. So, that's, an, I mean, a week being besieged... At the same time? Over, what like do you in mean? In December, 20... Yes, so uh, they're, they're, they're completely surrounded. The so fighting has been happening in this area from the start of the German attack, but they're completely surrounded by the 20, 21st of December. Right. And then the armored units in that area kind of press on, just like you know Hessler in the movie is going to bypass some of these areas mm-hmm. and everything like that. And they leave some German units there to, to take Bastogne on their own. And what this does is it actually allows the Americans, their defense, to actually hold out better than if the Germans had just attacked it normally and taken the time to fully take the, right. the city. So the Germans the German units that are left still outnumber the Americans two to one in the area, but they don't have the armor and support units that they would if they were doing a traditional attack on this mm-hmm. city. So they can't attack, they're not able to do mass coordinated attacks. So it allows the American units there, the 101st Airborne and some of the other units, to mass their defense when the German attacks come, and they repel attack after attack after attack after attack. And then on Christmas, there's a massive, massive German Assault on the defensive lines around Bastogne and they penetrate the lines they break through the American defensive They're on their way to Bastogne But the other American units in the area realize what's going on and they come in they cut off This breakthrough and they're able to pick apart the German armor and and units that break through this line and the the siege of Bastogne lasts until the 26th of December when Patton's 3rd Army breaks through the German lines, relieves the siege, and then they begin their counterattack in the south on the 27th of December, moving back. So those are kind of the two really, really main battles within the Battle of the Bulge that stop the German advance pretty hard. Now, there's fighting all over. The Germans are running into resistance all over the place, but they're also penetrating pretty... Are
1: they mentioned at all in the movie, those two battles?
0: So just barely. So the Elsenborn Ridge is not mentioned at all in the movie. The Siege of Bastogne is mentioned. They get one scene where the German with the motorcycle comes up and he demands the surrender of the unit defending Bastogne.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is a famous, famous story about the 101st in, in Bastogne is that the Germans ask for their surrender and the Americans give them a one-word answer and that's nuts, and the Germans don't know what nuts means because they don't have that slang, and I so don't know what nuts means. like crazy, like you're nuts.
1: Oh, right, okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay.
0: And that's all the Americans respond with they just say, nuts. And the Germans, and in the movie, they kind of portray this. The, huh? the general's like, nuts, nuts, and then it okay. cuts off and it goes away. But apparently, some Germans who understood what it meant had to explain it to the high command and they explained it to these generals as, go to hell. (laughs) And so after that, it's pretty clear that the the 101st Airborne was not giving up Bastogne. Mm -hmm. There is, so getting back to the kind of German advance, it's been slowing down for a while, but they did gain some ground in the kind of south central area. So kind of north of Bastogne, but south of the Elsenborn Ridge, kind of that central area, they're they're making pretty good pretty good ground. And so the Germans throw in more men. At the beginning of the offensive, there's like four hundred and ten thousand Germans versus two hundred and some odd American soldiers on the on the flank. The the Germans commit something like 1,400, 1, fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred tanks and armored units combined you know maybe more than that you know the numbers you, they don't know all the numbers exactly the Germans commit 1000 aircraft to to the offensive it's a massive massive it's the largest battle on the western front that the Americans fought in, fight in it's it's huge now compared to some of the battles on the eastern front it's kind of like on par for the course but in the western front it's it's the largest battle during the war
1: why is it why is it known as the battle of the bulge
0: so the, the reason it's called the Battle of the Bulge is because that German advanced through the American lines. If you, you, know, if you had like a straight line mm-hmm. and then you do like a little bubble in there, be, that's the area that the Germans push through. And it's, it's a bulge in the American lines. And that's where the, okay. that's where the term Battle of the Bulge comes right. from. Patton, who is in the south, who we talked about, he was kind of fighting in southern Germany mm-hmm. during the, the war in Europe. Many. The High Allied Command, after the German offensive has already happened, they call like a war council. And Eisenhower is there. Montgomery, who's the British general, is there. Bradley, who's the American general. And Patton are all there. And they're figuring out, okay, what units do we have that can counterattack this other than just some reserves like the 82nd and 101st Airborne. And Patton, when he was called to this war council, told his guys, hey start planning the massive redeployment of my army up towards the Belgium sector of the front. And so when he gets there and Eisenhower's kind of like who can attack with what and how soon, Patton's like I can attack with 3 divisions in 24 hours and no one believes him. And so he you know he tells me yeah. no because that's a that's like hundreds of thousands of men. Right. Being mo- right. being disengaged from the front where he's already engaged with German okay. units, disengaging them, turning north, and then moving up to re or to attack these German units, okay. and so it's a massive, massive troop movement that they don't think that he can do that in a, in enough time. So they give he says, all right, well I can do it in thirty six hours, and in thirty six hours he disengages three full divisions that are engaged fighting the Germans, points them north, and heads off attacking. He starts off on the 21st of December. And by the 26th of December, he breaks the siege at Bastogne in the south. And he moves over 100 miles in that time frame. It's, it's extremely impressive. It's one of Patton's shining moments in the war. There, he, he does a lot of really great things. But relieving the siege at Bastogne and really just the maneuver itself is extremely, extremely impressive. Now, Montgomery is supposed to be doing the kind of the same thing in the north with the British units, and they're going to kind of pincer, mm-hmm. cut the bulge off, but Montgomery's so Montgomery. Like, everything's... not. He can only move when things are perfect. He can only move when he has enough men. He can only move when he has more fuel, more this, more that, more that. So everything's so slow, and by the time he's engaged in battle, the Battle of the Bulge, from a German offensive perspective, is is almost over. And then he's just really engaged in re-stabilizing the line. But Patton's units from the south really hammer that southern flank of the Germans, break the siege of Bastogne, and start cutting off German units, and then pushing them back east. The tank battle in the movie is kind of like the end of the whole thing. They beat him at this tank battle, and then the... You know, they almost make it. They almost make it seem like the war is over. You know, like he says, oh, they're walking back to Germany, mm-hmm. and yeah,
1: that's how I took
0: it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not. I mean, this hap- this is happening from December to January, so the war doesn't end for months after that. There's still heavy, heavy fighting. They haven't even broken into Germany yet, right? They're they're not in Germany, mm-hmm. so they haven't broken the Siegfried line. They, no one's captured Berlin anything like that. So in the movie, they portray it like, oh, we beat the German army now and we can just walk right in. No, it's nothing like that. By the 26th of December, the German advance is pretty much done. They're running out of fuel. The weather is cleared. So allied air power is back up in the skies. Mm-hmm. And the movie doesn't even touch... The only plane you see in the entire movie is a scout plane. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the weather clears, which is ha- happens around Christmas Day, is when the weather starts to kind of clear... The 101st starts getting reinforced airdrops with, you know, supplies, medical supplies and ammunition. The Allied air power is back up in the air and they're bombing the hell out of these German columns. And they destroy a ton of armor and tanks and half-tracks and supply vehicles. the
1: German air um, power? How big is that?
0: So at the start of the battle, the Germans committed about a thousand planes. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, they have almost none of them. The Allies destroy between eight to nine hundred of the German, the German planes during the Battle of the Bulge, and the German Luftwaffe. Up in the
1: air, they do that, do they? They'll shoot them. Yeah, they
0: shoot right. them down. Yep, yep. So, uh, Allied air power never gets enough credit for the Battle of the Bulge because at the beginning they're grounded there is no Allied air power flying there are no planes bombing the Germans or you know strafing their lines or anything like that and so Patt- Patton gets a lot of credit for what he does but and rightfully so he should but no one really even talks about once the sky is clear they just destroy the German columns mm-hmm. and they're already cl- and they're all clogged up because of the fighting at Bastogne, and the fighting at Elsenborn Ridge. So they're all kind of in these narrow lanes, trying to push, keep pushing, keep pushing, mm-hmm. keep pushing. And so there's just like this long line that the American you know, airplanes take advantage of and just bomb them. Even after the Germans commit more troops, they commit like 50,000 more troops into the battle. They're all just destroyed from the air, tons and tons and tons of them. And by the 26th, 27th of December, the German offensive is stopped. It's done. And so now it's just rear guard actions. Of...
1: Who's, who's allied with the Germans? And is there anyone fighting with them in these areas?
0: So I was looking at the units. And I can't remember all of them. But in the Battle of the Bulge, it's, I, I'll just say, it's almost all German units. They're, the right. Germans do have allies. Finland, the troops from Finland are fighting with them, troops from Austria, uh, the Italians for a while, mm-hmm. troops from Romania, Yugoslavia, things like that. They they have they have other units with them that are Norway. There's a lot of troops from Norway that are fighting with the Germans. So, it's not just Germany versus everyone in the war like it's usually portrayed, but in this battle, it's pretty much just Germans. Okay. And by the 27th of December, the Germans begin to realize they're not going to reach Antwerp. And they don't even get close. Antwerp is roughly a hundred miles away from some of their staging areas. The farthest they even penetrate with a tank column is sixty miles, and it's on its last legs. They're almost out of fuel. They're trying to get to another fuel depot, and elements of the Second Armored Division are moved into that area. And there is a tank battle there. It's nothing like what happens in the movie, but they destroy kind of the the you know middle spearhead in the small tank engagement in this area in Belgium, and then the Germans are in pretty much full retreat after that. Hitler doesn't want to give it up, so he's once Hitler finally realizes that they're not going to reach Antwerp, he says, okay, well, don't give up any ground that we've taken. Hold that line, and that will be our new line of defense. And the German generals are like, we can't do that. You know, we don't even have that. But, of course, it's Hitler. He gives the orders. So they try to do that. And from about the 26th, 27th of December up until the 25th of January, it's the slow slog of the Americans pushing the Germans back to the starting line of what it was on the 16th of December. Oh, right. So just because this last tank battle happened and the advances stopped, mm-hmm. it's Una- almost another month before they're even back to where they started from yeah, okay. It does delay the ger- or the German it does delay the American and British spring offensive by quite a while. They're not ready to do it until you know March time frame and, and even later on in some in some areas. But what it does do is destroys the German war machine capability. All of these units in the West, or got got just wiped out, especially the armor. Now, a lot of the soldiers make their way back to the Siegfried Line for the defense. Mm-hmm. You know, in, that, in the movie, there the guy says, and they're walking back to Germany. There is some truth to that, because a lot of these, a lot of their tanks and a lot of their vehicles did run out of gas. They ran out of gas. And the units abandoned them and fought their way on foot back to the Siegfried Line. It's, it's pretty crazy that they even did that. In, I mean, they just... It's heavy snow.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They they're running low on ammunition. They're running low on food. They just lost all of their vehicles from Allied air bombing or just running out of fuel and just stopping and abandoning them. And they fight their way back to the Siegfried Line. So that just from a military standpoint, is kind of kind of impressive. But by the twenty fifth, the the line is is restabilized, and that's kind of that's kind of the end of the Battle of the Bulge. Right.
1: Well, the way that the movie. Um ends it with them all walking back to Germany and that one guy who didn't want to be with Hessler anymore. And Conrad. He crazy, yeah. Threw down his weapon. It just kind of made it feel like he was kind of representing the German army that were leaving and that they were all done with it and wanted to stop fighting Yes, a hopeless war.
0: Yes. And there are Germans who are realizing that for sure. The actor who portrays him, mm-hmm. I can't remember his name, but He fought in the German army during World War II. He fought the Russians on the Eastern Front and was wounded. So he, you know, as far as him being an actor who can portray the defeat and the mindset of the German Mm -hmm. regular soldier at that time, late 1944 into 1945, when they're all kind of beginning to realize, like, we are not going to win this war Mm -hmm. and it's going to be bad for us. I think he represents that just as a Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, overall view he's his character is not a real character but he's kind of representing yes. that mindset of the german army so yeah that kind of brings us full circles is there anything in the movie that we didn't cover that you were kind of thinking about or wanted to wanted to talk about or had questions about is there anything i mean i always ask this question but is there anything that's surprising about the movie that you kind of thought, like, you know, like I said, I always ask it, but like, oh, I kind of thought that that would have been more, or at the very least, kind of real, or I kind of thought that this would have been true, or, or anything like that.
1: No, because my World War Two knowledge isn't great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't. I, I learned about it in school, and I, you know, it's pretty basic.
0: So when you were watching the movie, you just kind of assumed that they had gotten things more or less, yeah, more or less, right. Much. Now in The Movie's Defense, they do get some things right. They the the overall feel of the German army smashing the Americans and the Americans having to reform and then push them back. Mm-hmm. They they kind of capture that spirit, but as a historical film, it's just so so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, they
1: Did you know when you watched it? Did you know how inaccurate it was when you were first watching it as you a mean child? When I, no, I had no idea. No, okay. I,
0: yeah, I I just assumed that that's More or less how it happened. And when you look back on it now, especially that last tank battle, it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine a uh, a German general, an uh, American general saying, we're going to sacrifice y'all's lives just so that the Germans run out of fuel? Mm -hmm. Like, go out there and fight them until their tanks run out of gas. We don't know when that's going to be. And just hoping that, I mean, what a terrible strategy. That wouldn't work. It, like, I
1: don't know. I thought it was a pretty good strategy.
0: And, you know, the German, <laughs> the, the the general, excuse me, is just sitting in his headquarters with his, you know, crossed arms on the back of a chair going, <laughs> they've got to run out of gas. Keep attacking. It's like, oh, wow. You're just going to slaughter all your American <laughs> lives just hoping that the Germans run out of gas on on the battlefield? That's ridiculous. It, 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 it's it's I mean, the more I think about it, the more stupid it is. And
1: that's frustrating to me because that's the bit that I guess I wanted to be real the most.
0: I mean, there is obviously an element of the Germans running out, but it wasn't like the Americans were like, oh, we just got to hold them until they run out of gas. Mm -hmm. Although Patton did say we should open up our lines and let... even more Germans come in, let them penetrate as far as they possibly can, and then we're going to pincer attack this bulge and just cut off so many, of them. So many Germans, but mm-hmm. from the high command standpoint, that's not a gamble that they right, wanted to take. Yeah. So. Patton did kind of say something like that. He's like, hey, let them all run out of gas. Just let them go. Let, them, let mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Germans penetrate our lines, and then I'll get my re- army ready in the south, get the British ready in the north. We'll just cut them all off. Yeah, if
1: off. that went wrong, that would be really, really bad.
0: Yeah, exactly. So they, they, for multiple reasons, they couldn't do that. But, the, yeah, I mean, there's no German general, or God, I keep on saying German general. There's no general who is just going to sacrifice men on the open field mm-hmm. like that specifically to make them run out of gas. They don't know how long, you know, what if that tank battle only lasted a couple hours? They would have been back. They would have lost all their tanks, all these men dead, and the Germans would have gone and captured the fuel depot. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The, yeah, it's, it's bad. It's the more I think about it, the more frustrating it is as a movie. All the little things they get wrong to all the big things they get wrong. You know, the, at the end of the movie, they say they try and capture the essence of the battle and i don't even know if they do that it's just not a it's not a very good movie it's there's it's, it's always, it has a special place in my heart cuz from a young child watching uh-huh. it and enjoying it and it is it is an enjoyable movie oh, yeah, i enjoyed it but from a historical perspective i just look at it and i, and I just say why i was like why couldn't you make it more dramatic but also tell some of the real things that uh-huh. actually happened if you're going yeah,
1: especially considering it was only 20 years later
0: yes it, it's so bad that general eisenhower you know they say he came out of retirement i don't really know exactly what that means other than like because he didn't rejoin the army because of this movie but he did like come out of seclusion you know to say how bad this movie was and how he does not it endorse is. it and <laughs> and how it's such a terrible movie so when when the head general and former president of the united states who has retired and is you know Excuse me. When he you know he comes out of retirement to discredit this movie, you've done some things wrong. And there was another movie being made by a rival movie studio at this time that never ended up getting off the ground. But they were gonna they had the the U.S. Army involved and they were gonna portray it correctly. But because this movie had already started and they had already got all these famous actors and started doing promo beforehand that the other one that was going to be more, much more historically accurate didn't get off the field, and the, the studio ended up shutting it down. And so now we've got this glorious historical inaccuracy of mm-hmm. the Battle of the Bulge. And it's crazy because it's got this great cast. It's got all these big-time stars in it. Some of them fought in World War II. Some of these actors fought in World War II, and then here they come, and they're just doing this terrible representation of the, one of the most famous battles mm-hmm. in so. World War II, especially from an American perspective. It's kind of frustrating. So on a historical scale, it fails absolutely miserably. And they also, you know, from a timetable... Movies always do this. They shrink things down, you know, from a from a, how long it takes. In the movie, it may be only like a week-long total, you know, from start to finish. In reality, it's, you know, a month, month and right. a half. So that kind of covers everything that we kind of wanted to and so I hope you enjoyed that episode of based on history thanks again for listening Don't forget to follow us on Instagram We're on YouTube now if, if you just want to listen and look at a cool picture of something of the uh, ep- the topic that we're talking about we're up to 60 followers on Instagram so once again slow and steady moving up the following <laughs> Thanks to everybody who has supported us, thanks to everybody who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, follow us on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. It really it really helps us out a lot, trying to grow the, grow the numbers.
1: And um, I get to pick the next movie.
0: And Alexis gets to pick the next movie, so stand, <laughs> stand by for that announcement. <laughs> also, don't forget, if there's something that I got wrong or I forgot to talk about that you were hoping I would... Let me know on Instagram, or if you know me, just shoot me a text, and it will be covered on things John got wrong for the next episode. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all again. Adios.